Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. What we're going to do to get started is to pick up our story in Luke chapter 14. And it says, one time uh, when Jesus wa- went for a Sabbath meal with one of the top leaders of the Pharisees, all of the guests had their eyes on him watching his every move. Right before him, there was a man hugely swollen in his joints, and Jesus asked the religion scholars and the Pharisees present, he says, is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath, yes or no? They were silent. So he took the man, he healed him, and he sent him on his way. And then he said, is there anyone here who, if a child or animal fell down a well, wouldn't rush to pull him out immediately, not asking whether or not it was the Sabbath? And they were stumped. There was nothing they could say to that. So let me set the stage for you, what's happening here We're going to call this week Dinner Party Part 1. Jesus is on his way to a dinner party. And we're going to actually spend three weeks kind of unpacking this dinner party all through chapter 14. I think it's a really important passage for us as modern believers to understand what Jesus is doing in this ancient time. They've left Sabbath worship at the synagogue. So Sabbath, they're Saturday, they're they're worshiping at the synagogue. They get together as a community, they read scripture together, they're singing together, they're doing their thing, their God-honoring thing. And then they leave, and they're heading to dinner. And Jesus happens to be in the dinner party of some very important people, scholars and leaders. And so as they head out, they encounter this man with hugely swollen joints. And Jesus suspends the production of dinner. The, the, Jesus stalls in the thing that they were going to do, this kind of every week rhythm of worship and churchy kind of things, followed by a great big meal of celebration. And he stops it right in the middle to deal with this outsider, this person who everybody else could kind of walk by because we have things to do and places to go. And Jesus turns it into something different. Jesus takes an exclusive event because in that time, and we'll get more into this, the Sabbath processes became more exclusive as they went. And it became more of a who's who and who are you seen with than, than what the point was to begin with. And so Jesus in his moment sort of says, let me take a break here and show you something else. Because they had built in exclusivity. This is what we do as humans. Exclusivity is something we love. I don't know if you've looked around lately, but exclusivity is kind of what drives the economy in so many different uh, ways. There's only so many to go out. Whether you collect things, sneakers, collectibles, whatever it is, there's only so many. You got to get them while they're hot. Maybe you have a closet full of Beanie Babies because there was a time they told you they're only making so many. You can pay for your kid's college with Beanie Babies. Limited time only runs of materials, limited time only runs of food. Everybody knows when pumpkin spice season starts, you can only get it then. Or the destructively delicious phenomenon known as the McRib, available for a limited time only. It's exclusive. You can only get it in this one season. You have to get it. When uh, my wife and I took our honeymoon uh, many, many moons ago, we chose to go to Seattle. We wanted to go to Seattle. That's where we went. It was this glorious week. It was sunny. It was beautiful. Um, and kind of the, the crown jewel, everybody kind of has their thing they're supposed to do. And we were told you have to go to this certain restaurant, Matt's in the Market. We have a picture we'll put up for you. You can see the inside of Matt's in the Market. You can see the Pike Place Market right across the street. So it's in this little building across the street from their big public famous market. And, and the chef, Matt, 
goes every single day to the market. He picks out what's best and freshest, and he handwrites a menu. And so you show up that night not knowing what you're going to eat, and then he'll, he stands right behind that counter where those bar stools are, and that's the kitchen. And he cooks right there in front of you, and he makes enough food for everybody in the place, but there's, there's only five tables. And so people will tell you it's impossible to get a table. It's super hard to get a table. You got to get a table. See if you can get a table. And what they're really saying is it's super exclusive, and you really have to get there. Now, here's the thing. I don't remember if the food was any good. I just remember that we got a table (laughs) because it was exclusive. It was hard to get a table. We booked it months in advance, and we finally got in, and we were cramped into a corner, and and I don't remember if it was any good. And I don't think Matt's in the market would be all that fantastic if Matt happened to be Matt's in the barn with a thousand seats or Matt's at the drive-thru out in the suburbs. Nobody would think it's all that incredible, but because it was exclusive... We were experiencing something that so many other people couldn't that day. There was some value in it. We felt special. A few weeks ago, a few months ago maybe at this point, uh, a comic book, a Tintin comic book from the 60s, I believe, sold for $3 million. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And then I scroll down to the next news story, and it says this guy, this guy here bought this Mickey Mantle baseball card for $5.2 million. And I don't know if they told him that it's cardboard with ink on it. And I tried to say I wasn't going to point out that his shirt says dope on it. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. Why is it worth $5.2 million? Because it's like the only one of its kind that's in perfect condition. It's exclusive. If you want it, he's got it. Sports cards, sports themselves, kids, grandkids are playing sports these days. You look around, you go, oh gosh. Baseball was started by some factory workers on a break with a, a, a bat and a ball. And these days it's $250 to buy the bat you're supposed to buy, and then you got to have the right gear, and then you got to join the travel league, and the soccer league is all over the state. We got people that are playing soccer on the weekends in Michigan and coming back in, and they're 12 years old, and everything gets more exclusive. If you want to be in the top league, you got to get more exclusive. It's going to be more expensive, it's going to be hard to get to. Exclusivity is built into the fabric of our culture in an interesting way, but it's not new. It's just what we do as people. Even colleges, we're in a college town. If I asked you what the best colleges in the country are, whether you know it or not, what you're going to name is the colleges that have the the lowest acceptance rate, the lowest percentage of students that get accepted. So you're going to say Harvard, Yale, or whatever you're going to say, and you'll look it up, and it's the same ones. Why are they the best? Partially, it's just the perception of exclusivity. It's really hard to get in. Only so many front row seats at the theater. We love exclusivity. The Pharisees love exclusivity, and they'd increasingly taken the Sabbath and made it an exclusive event of religiosity and righteousness that changed, in a a sense, from a celebration of God to a show about a celebration of God. Like a righteousness arms race, who can impress each other with the fanciest serveware or the nicest wines or the most prestigious guests. And so this thing that was created as a remembrance that we need rest and sustenance, that we need community, that we need deliverance on a daily basis had sort of morphed into this other thing that it wasn't supposed to be at all. Like somewhere along the way, they lost God in the process. And you and I show up here on a Sunday morning, and we have to be sure that we're not losing God in the process of doing God things, that we're not sitting here singing to God, and then we leave here and kind of put Him in the background until we get back here the next week. 
that there's a temptation that we can make these beautiful God-shaped things into the thing that we're doing instead of God himself. See, their Sabbath started like our Sunday starts. They started with worship. They'd all go to the synagogue together, and they would have their time of worship and scripture reading. It's a lot like this. And then after that was over, everybody would then leave the synagogue, and the hundreds would leave, and they'd go to individual houses, and they'd go and have dinner. And that was an ongoing part. It's as if if we left here, and 12 went this way, and 6 went there, and we all went, we had our prescribed places we were going to go. And once we got to our houses, I would read the scripture, and then you would pray that prayer, and she would sing that song. And it was kind of a continuation of the the synagogue service is they would keep doing it in homes. It had these beautiful kind of remembrances built into it, these rhythms that, that pointed everything back to God. And yet, somewhere along the lines, that lost their impact. And it became background noise as in that day, much as in many places, you've probably been to a church service on a Sunday morning and you went, what was that really about? May it never be here. Where you say, I think we lost the point. And they had sort of lost the point in so many ways in the time of Jesus. He's basically said, you've so invested in the show for God that you've lost the heart of God. Like it's become about the show. You ever been sitting in a restaurant and seen someone pull out their phone to grab photos of their food for Instagram? We have one of those. I was in Juniper last week and everybody, I'll usually give people the right to tell me if we were going to meet, where are we going to meet? And people almost always now say Juniper. I go, okay, great uh, new place and friends that are, are leading the charge and managing the place and making it happen. And, and so I went to meet somebody and I had a chicken sandwich, a great chicken sandwich. And I'm eating my chicken sandwich and it's kind of one of the first things I've had on the menu and I'm kind of looking around to see what other people have. Just, you know, you kind of go, does that look good? Or I wonder how they're going to, if they're going to make a face when they take a bite of that, I won't get the. And so these three young women sit down at a table near me and their food shows up, and I'm really curious to see what they're going to do. And this is what they did, is they took out their phones, and they began taking pictures, and then like, get out of my light, and they're turning it just the right way, and you know, and it was, the filters are going on, and I was looking at them going like, they're never going to eat, like the food's cold now. You just, we missed the whole thing, because we got so interested in the show of the food that we didn't eat the, the food. I'm not judging them, I've taken a picture of food before. But it was really funny to me. It was like this instructive moment where we've all been in that place where the show of the thing has become more important than the thing, that getting the digital evidence that this thing happened for the people out there that aren't at the table with me so they can see what I ate, somehow in our warped brains took precedence over just enjoying the meal with the people I'm with. And all of us in our current mind, we go, that's absurd. Why would we do that? But we all do it on some way, shape, or form in different arenas in our life. We all have this strange obsession that drives us into places where the thing, we lose sight of the thing, and it becomes about the thing that leads to the thing, or the show about the thing, or the idea of the thing, and we go, what was the thing? What was the point all along? Back to this Sabbath, back to the text. The question we're really asking as Jesus leads these men back to their Sabbath meal as they go to celebrate, the question we're really asking is, what is the heart of God? And you don't have to look far in this instance. He's with the religious elite, and he sees a need on the street. He sees a down-and-out person who would not have been invited to this meal because they're not adding any status to our dinner. And so Jesus' response to seeing this person on the side of the road is to defy Sabbath law, subvert the show itself. Jesus' response is to take on the battle of someone who cannot fight for themselves. 
as if to say, this is the point of the Sabbath, that we might have our hearts so drawn to God's heart that when we run across things in this life, we begin to find ourselves more in line with God's heart for them. So we don't get so lost in the show of God that we lose God. We actually get so in tune with God that God becomes every action of our day. That we're thinking about the flourishing and the gain and the healing of others, not how can I leverage this God-shaped event for myself? Because the religious leaders had made faith about personal gain and growing status and wealth and improving their credentials. Where have we lost the heart of God in pursuit of God-shaped things? It's a hard question sometimes because we're like, well, what do you mean by that? That's a question I can't answer for anybody but myself. Where have we made these God-shaped things more important than God himself? Where have we lost the heart that God is trying to give us in order to to make sure the show looks good? Because life is beautiful and it's full of reflections of God's creation. And whether that's food or sports, these things that have kind of taken us astray, those are good things. Faith communities are good things. Sunday service is a great thing. And yet all of these things, while they can be wonderful things that expand our heart for God, that can show us grace and beauty and action, that that can begin to draw us closer to God's own heart and character, too often we allow them to steal our affection. And they begin to distract us from the God who is in our very midst. I'll give you a, a somewhat profound example from my past the previous church we were at, our pastor had a, a really brilliant and a little bit um, a subversive idea. I really admired it. I was going to do it to you today just as a preface, but I decided not to do it to you for a thousand different reasons, but one of which is it's a whole lot of work what he went through. So one Sunday morning, we had a big church, a couple thousand people at its peak, and he decided really early to wake up on a Sunday morning and, and had some friends come over to help him with this little project. And And some brought makeup, and others brought cartons of cigarettes and whiskey. And what they did is, over the course of a long morning, is they made him up to look like a down-and-out homeless person. And they volunteered. They had volunteers who agreed to just sit and blow smoke on him all morning so he would smell the part. And they poured the whiskey on him so he would smell the part. And they got him looking just dirty enough here and just haggard enough there. And they added a little bit of worn, and they covered him in burlap, and they put him in some blankets. And he decided to be about 30 feet from the front door of the church, just off the walkway as people walked up. Man, that was a tough day. Because the genius of his trick was as he sat there and as the great worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ walked by to go and worship Jesus Christ, passing this brother in need. After they were all in and the songs had been sung, he went around the back door and walked right on the stage in costume and preached the sermon as the homeless man that they had all had walked by. But for the grace of God go I, in the sense that if I had done that here, if you had done that there, if I had thought about the thousand times in my life that I have simply walked by, whatever the need is, it starts to kind of sink in my heart a little bit, to go, how many times have I walked by the need? in order to get to the thing that was shaped like the thing I was after anyway. And he said, you know, of the thousand people who showed up that day, two stopped and said, how can we help? So he'd lift the burlap and go, don't tell anyone it's me. And they'd go in knowing that something was up, and yet, how often is that us? 
we walk through the world on the way to the right thing. They weren't going to the wrong thing. They just missed the opportunity God had put in front of them. Got so busy worshiping God, we missed a chance to really worship God through our actions, to meet God in the place, to introduce God to another. Jesus is showing us that true worship, true faith, and true religion are in the serving of others with God's heart. True worship is in serving someone with God's heart. True faith is in serving someone with God's heart. True religion is serving someone with God's heart. Scripture over and over and over lays this out. And the overflow of that is what we get to do in here when we get to sing about the God who fights our battles for us, the God who fights our battles, who sees us as those on the side of the road and chooses to fight our battle for us, to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. When we overflow in our worship on a Sunday morning, it is the overflow of what he is doing in our midst the other 167 hours of the week, the opportunities he's laying in front of us to learn his character, to grow our hearts, to be more like his. This, uh, a couple years ago, we started a ministry, national ministry, but we kind of started it in our region called the Open Table. I have a picture of one of our first tables, and essentially what it is, long story short, is a group of people give a year of their life they offer an hour or more a week, a year of their life to surround somebody in need, socioeconomic or spiritual or medical, whatever that person's need is. That person is in some sort of poverty, and, and a network, a collection of people will surround them and say, we will be your network. We will be the people who hold you up. We'll be your community. And so this is a picture of one of our first tables that a group of people surrounded a person we love and said, we will hold you up this year. If you have goals, we're going to help you get there. If you have dreams, we're going to try to help you. If you have challenges, we're going to walk through it with you. And they cried together, and they fought together, and occasionally even like the picture, they laughed together. And they built this sort of pseudo-family out of the thing. What was so interesting to me is when we were first recruiting the first table, and yes, we are recruiting more tables right now, so if you said, hey, that sounds like the kind of thing maybe I'm interested in, talk to me. When we were recruiting the first table, someone came to me privately and they said, listen, I want to be a part of this. I feel like God has called me to be a part of this. This is, this is what my heart wants to do, but I don't have time. And they told me, I'd have to stop a Bible study that I really enjoy, and I think people would be wondering why I left it. I'd have to quit my Bible study in order to go do this thing, and I can't figure out what it is I'm supposed to do. And I said, well, I can't tell you what you're supposed to do, but I can tell you that if you feel called to this practice, that maybe Bible practice is what God has called you to in this season, that Bible study has led you to a place where you're now ready for Bible practice. I love Bible study. Don't hear me say otherwise. But some of us get so consumed with studying God's Word, God's character, God's heart, that we never actually live it out. We run out of time in the week to do the God work because we're so busy with the God learning. This is not just an American problem. It's not a covenant problem. It's a people problem. When we lived in South Africa, in an urban, desperately poor church in Johannesburg, South Africa, we'd have, there was something every night. Wednesday night was Bible study. Thursday night was outreach. Wednesday night, we'd have 80 people for sure. Thursday night, it would be a great night if we had eight. Why? Because we like to grow and be fed and learn, and it's really uncomfortable to go and use it. It's uncomfortable to go out and put our faith to work sometimes. illustration I had written in my notes a while back, and it became uncomfortably, uh, acutely uh, strange for me this week, but imagine you're in the hospital, and there's a patient on the table, 
And the surgeon walks into the operating room with this patient in acute distress and dire need of this medical intervention. And the surgeon walks in and they go, doctor, are you ready? And the surgeon says, I'll have to get back to you. This book on general surgery is super fascinating. We'd go, that's absurdity. The surgeon is a surgeon because they perform surgery and they keep up with the latest trends and the things they need to learn. But the surgeon is a surgeon because they perform surgery. The firefighter is a firefighter because they fight fires and they keep going through the training that keeps them at the top of their craft. The Christian is a Christian because they practice Christ and continue to grow in their learning and their love and the, the heart and character of God. But they can't, you can't have a surgeon who doesn't do surgery How will people know if we're Christians? How will they know that we follow Jesus? Jesus said it. This is how everyone will recognize that you're my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. Not when they hear your great sermons, not when they read your great writings, when they see the love that you have for each other. How will they know that you're a Christ follower? It's when you're following Christ actively with your days and your being. They'll know us by our love. They'll know us when we continue in our growth and our learning, but our actions that reflect the heart of Christ. When we leave this room and we use the 167 hours we have a week outside of this place and we use them for the glory of God, not only for the learning, which is good, not only for the spiritual knowledge, not only for the morning devotional and Bible study, not only for those things. Those are great things. But to use those things like the surgeon uses his training to go and perform, to go and practice the thing he was trained to do. You are being practiced, you are being trained and being ready and being taught and being grown so that you might practice and perform the act of Christianity in the world. You've been given the tools and the grace and the gift to go out and be Jesus in the world. And less than that, we're just Christian performers in the pharisaical sense. We're just people that are going through the motions. We're just showing up for the Sabbath. We're just having the meal to be seen. And that's never been my experience of who we are as a community. And so Jesus comes in in this moment and makes this really clear distinction between what the Sabbath was about, between what the religious practice was all about. And I think for us, it's important while we are incredible at this as a church in general, it's always a good time for a heart check. To say, where have my God-shaped behaviors overtaken my actual practice of my love for God? Where do we go about our own life, our own worship, our own dinner parties? Where do we pass the person on the side of the road when we have been invited to stop? We say it often around here, we exist to make outsiders insiders. This is the heart of our mission statement. Our mission statement is to know Jesus and make him known. But what that's really about is helping people outside the walls of faith to get inside the walls of faith. It's about if we can know Jesus well, then the natural outflow of knowing Jesus and understanding his heart for the world, of being in relationship with a risen, resurrected Christ, the, the heart of that will lead us to making him known to others in word and deed. That's the heart of our mission is how do we, as insiders who've been called into God's family, who've been called brother and sister and friend, how do we leverage our lives to turn around and invite other people to experience the grace that we know? It's seen in the battles. It's seen in fighting the battle for someone who does not have the strength to fight it for themselves in the moment. It's seen in picking up the battle of your neighbor who doesn't follow Christ and doesn't have any interest in Christ and going, because I do, I will help you carry the weight of that. 
It's for your relatives and your office mates and your school friends. It's for those people that we have been called and left on this place. Why doesn't God just take us all home? Because he wants to allow us to participate in his redemptive work of his creation. We've been invited into this incredible mission. But it requires that we take off the religious and we take off this sort of play of righteousness and we get down in the mud with the people who are desperate to receive that love. So when do you see the man with swollen joints on your way to the dinner party? Is there space in your week amongst all the God-shaped things for God to invite you into moments of true worship? Is your life growing more exclusive as the years go by, or are you growing in your inclusivity? Do you have that outsider-insider filter on as you see the world around you? How can I get one more outsider over the wall into God's grace and His love? Early Christians were known as Christians by their acts of love. They were wall jumpers in a walled city. They'd climb over the walls into the other districts of the city, the other ethnic areas of the city, and they would scoop up people's discarded, ill, dying, disabled. They would go into the city streets and they would scoop up those who others didn't want and they would bring them back over the wall into the Christian district. That is still what we're called to do is we are to go over the walls that people have built around them, and we are to go and help be part of the rescue plan for those who have been left, those who have been discarded, those who have been disabled by the battles of life. And we are to pick them up and drive them home, carry them over the wall, and invite them to be an insider. We only get to do this life once. May we be found to be a radically inclusive and sacrificially serving band of misfits and salvaged sinners. The way we get to where we need to be, the way we have the humility that God has called us to is to recognize who we were when he found us. We are the band of misfits and salvaged sinners that he now calls saints and friends and brothers and sisters, and we get to live in that old identity only so far as to recognize, I was once lost, I'm now found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We have wretch in the history so that we can live as saints in the future. And if we see ourselves in that light, if we have that humility, we go through the world not seeing a way that we can grow on the religious ladder. We see others who were where we once were. We see others who are hurting. We see hearts in need. We see families who need love. We see it. So may our lives show off nothing less than the incredible, unfathomable love of a Jesus who will fight our battles for us before we ever even knew to ask. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would confess this week that I've been deeply impacted by a community willing to fight a battle with me. God, as my own family struggles, my own family was in a battle we did not have the resources to fight. Lord, you have shown me and reminded me what it looks like to be on the other side. God, as we look around our world, as we look around our neighborhoods and our schools and our communities, Father, I pray that you would give us your eyes to see those who have been discarded or disabled by the challenges of life, those who feel outside and lost and broken. Father, remind us that we exist here to be part of your redemptive plan to use our days to make outsiders insiders, to bring them over the wall of faith into safety and security into your grace and your love. So God, thank you for that reminder in my life this week. My prayer 
is that we would all, in our depth of humility, be able to look around us. God, in our brokenness, we would see that we live in a world that is ready for our service and for our love and for our Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.